it's been like very rewarding as someone who's non-binary and always looking for community and finding that with kids. Cause I feel like we, there's like this childism that I know Linz talks a lot about on their podcast that I feel like we don't give kids enough credit for having their own thoughts and advocating for themselves. So a lot of the times they're coming in and teaching us things or we're making assumptions like assuming kids have pronouns and they're like, no, we don't, I don't have a pronoun. Like I'm just my name. And it's just been really cool seeing how they are teaching us along the way. It certainly isn't the case for everyone, but for many parents, raising a transgender kiddo can feel like a pretty isolating experience. Who do I talk to about it? Where do we find more information? What information can we believe? What supports are even available for our family? What does any of this even mean? You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham. If you've listened to the show before, you know that I am big on community. In fact, I think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself as a parent in any capacity, but certainly in a capacity of trying to parent a transgender kid, community will save you. Finding other families, though, can be difficult. And there are so many factors that make it difficult. And where you live is usually a big one. There are certain parts of this country that have more resources and supports than others, but even in those communities, it can still be hard to find what you need. Another big barrier for finding support is the age of your child. When kids come out early, like before puberty early, it often leaves parents with a, well, what do we even do with this feeling? We don't need medical interventions. I'm not even sure my kid needs therapy. I'm not even sure this is going to stick. I just want them to feel like they aren't the only one. And the truth is, Most of the resources that exist in the U.S. really focus on teens and adults. So finding social supports for the younger kids can be really, really challenging. That's why sometimes parents end up taking it on themselves. And that's exactly what our campfire guest Shannon Collins did for their kiddo. Shannon is actually a Camp Wild Heart listener. They reached out to share some of the things that they've been collaborating on and creating to support their own gender expansive kid. And I knew immediately that I wanted to have them to camp to tell you about what they've developed. Shannon is a white, non-binary queer person who uses they-them pronouns. Maybe it's because they're an artist, but Shannon's creativity as they approached how to develop a community of support for their kid and kids like their kid is really incredible. They partnered with their local library to start an online group for younger kids during the pandemic called Rainbow Connections. And they found all sorts of business owners to donate time and resources to create a breathtaking photography project called Youthphoria. I'm not kidding you. When I looked at these images of these kids getting to be their truest selves, I was brought to tears. It's so powerful and moving just to see them radiate authenticity and joy. Take a minute and check out part of the community that Shannon has helped to create. Links will be in the show notes. So why don't we just start with you telling me about Rainbow Connections, because it is, it sounds like anyway, just pure joy and magic and something that's so needed. Um, I'm sort of worried you're going to get inundated with people, um, but that would be a great problem to have. Tell me about it. What to, to tell the community about it. What is it? How does it work? 
Oh, I'm just excited to talk about it. So thank you for having me. And yeah, Rainbow Connections is something that was created last year in the fall. I reached out to our local library, Abington Township Public Library. And I just said like, hey, I am non-binary and I have a non-binary kiddo. And we were hoping to try to find some community for them in their age group. Um, and I couldn't really find anything in the local school with like GSAs in the elementary school age. Like it didn't seem to exist. So I just thought maybe they would be open to creating a group with me because they kind of seem to be liberal leaning for a library. They always have like really representative books on their stands and stuff and seem really cool. So um, I reached out and then I heard back pretty much immediately from a librarian saying like, hey, let me connect you to our children's librarian, Jessica Olzak. Um, and then from there, we kind of hit it off and started planning. We didn't get the official go ahead until September, but then once we did, we planned and started in November. And that's when we had like 25 kids register for our first meeting. Um, and it's all it was all virtual to start. And it still is because of the pandemic, but also because of accessibility, since like half of the kids that are attending are from the Abington area where I live in the Philadelphia suburbs. And then the other half are coming from like all over the country, like Kansas City and like Mexico and Arizona, like and it's for K-5, right? Yeah, I should have mentioned it was for K-5. through five. The library has a group for 6 through 12, so we wanted to fill that gap. Um, yeah, and we have two different meetup times on Mondays, the second Monday of every month. Um, so the first group meets from like 6 to 6.45, and the second group is from 7 to 7.45 on the East Coast. And it's just been really fantastic and fun. And we kind of try to let the kids lead the way as much as we can, but also create like a topic every month and have really cool guests yeah, I'm super excited. I saw that you're having um, Linz come, and I'm so excited for that. Yeah. Um, Linz is the founder of the Queer Kids Stuff uh, websites, and um, I think their new podcast is Rainbow Parenting. Yes. Um, and I'm super excited. They're going to be on the show later. So the K through five age range, right? Mm -hmm. They're so fun and like curious and open. It's also the age range that like people tend to be the most, should we affirm this or not? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how, just like, what's your experience been with like other parents in the community or like have any kids, yeah, let's start there. Like, have you heard from other families or other parents about like the value of this group? Yeah, it's been really nice. We've kind of created like a working Google Doc where we add testimonials. It's just like kind words we're getting from people because we are getting some letters that are rare, just kind of like giving us some, you know, of the anti-trans kind of stuff that we would expect to receive. But other than that, it's just been like beautiful letters of people being like, I didn't know this existed for kids this age and like my kids trans and, you know, some of the kids since coming to the group have changed their pronouns or their names or um, all these other things that like they've felt confident enough to do so. And it's just been like really magical to see that growth. Um, I don't know. It's been like very rewarding as someone who's non-binary and always looking for community and finding that with kids. Cause I feel like we, we, there's like this childism that I know Linz talks a lot about on their podcast that I feel like we don't give kids enough credit for having their own thoughts and advocating for themselves. So, you know, a lot of the times they're coming in and teaching us things or we're making assumptions, like assuming kids have pronouns and they're like, no, we don't, I don't have a pronoun. Like I'm just my name. And it's just been really cool seeing how they are teaching us along the way. That's awesome. And it sounds like our some our experiences are similar. So like every piece of like nasty email mm -hmm. I get, I get at least five like you've saved my child's life emails. Yeah, um, which is amazing. And I love that you went searching for community, and I particularly love that you did it at the library. Like 
people constantly asking me like, where do we go for resources? What do we do? How do we explain this to my kid? And I'm constantly saying like, children's literature, children's yeah. literature, children's literature. Um, and the children's librarian at your local libraries is like, they should be your best friend. Um, they know all the things that like you can walk in and be like, I need, I'm looking for a book that does this, like talks about this in this way, or like is about bodies or is about gender or is about blended families or biracial families or like whatever. And they're like, oh yeah, I got that. Yeah. Right. Like it's over here. Let me take you to it. Or, oh, you know what? We don't have that. I'm going to find some children's literature. I'm going to bring it in here. It's such a powerful tool also to like talk about hard things or different things to introduce different concepts uh, and make mm. it so that it's like one step removed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it makes it so much easier for kids to talk about and ask questions about. It feels way less scary. So I just deeply love that you were like, we should go to the library. And out. <laughs> um, I'm like, they're already doing the work. So I'm just going to kind of co-opt that. <laughs> yeah. I think that people forget. You know, um, mm-hmm. but libraries are s- such a centerpiece to our communities. And I think that people forget that that's the case. Yeah. They're like one of the only free spaces that you can just exist in. Yeah, exactly. And it's like accessible. I, yeah, I wanted it to be free. And there's not many groups for the K through five age range, especially that are free. So it meant a lot to me that like the library was open to pairing up and like to see my co-host like ordering books that aren't available or if someone's like stealing a book to try to be, you know, like, I don't like gay people. Like she'll just order two more of the same. <laughs> just like, I love that. <laughs> it makes me fired up. She's like, oh, I guess we needed multiple. Times. Yeah. I'll just be ordering 20 more of these. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Okay. And so like you went searching for community, you obviously found it. Um, and you said that there's two groups. You said the first time there was like 25 kids that came. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you regularly have, you regularly have like north of 15 kids, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say so. Like if we have 25 register, maybe like 20 will come because things happen or someone's sick or something. But yeah, usually around like 20 per group is what we are aiming for. Wow. And they're all online and they're able to form connections with each other. One of the questions I have, I didn't ask you this before when we were talking. Um, I know that in my experience, especially with older kids, not so much with younger kids, but maybe um, sometimes they're like so apprehensive about joining a group mm-hmm. um, that they want to be able to join with like camera off or they want to be able to oh, join yeah. and just like chill. How do you go about helping kids feel comfortable in an online space? I know that like post-pandemic, they're a whole different breed of human, but how do you go about helping them feel comfortable when they first come in? Yeah. um, As someone who is very anxious and like neurodivergent, I do not like having my camera on in meetings typically. Like this is delightful because I can see you and I trust you. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. so for us, we immediately say like, you can have your cameras off if you want to be eating, like feel free to do that. You don't have to participate in any way. Um, For me, like 
we do offer icebreakers, but for me, that would like cause massive anxiety. So I don't want anyone to feel like they have to be obligated to like share their name or anything that may not feel safe, like pronouns and stuff. So it's definitely not mandatory. And we kind of like touch base as much as we can in advance with things that they can expect, because I feel like, at least for me with the autism, like that helps me so much just to know what to expect. And then I feel more in control. So we'll be like, mm-hmm. you know, these are the questions we're going to ask about the book. So you can think about them in advance. This is the icebreaker question. And just like giving people the chance to really have that time to sit with what it might look like to be in a space together. That's amazing. Um, and wonderful. And so mindful of all the different needs that are coming into the space. Do they hear a book each time? Yeah, we typically try to do a book each time. It's been really cool. And usually Jessica does that because I like break out in a rash if I have to read in front of people, (laughs) (laughs) which has happened. (laughs) Yeah. I understand. So she reads a book and, um, she co-facilitates and then the kids sort of run the rest of the show. Um, there's like a loose kind of outline that we do each time that we sort of mix up and don't have it in the same order. So usually there's like an icebreaker question and we're sharing like names and then some kind of random fun fact. Um, and then maybe she'll read a book and we'll ask some questions about the book, maybe like one or two. Um, and then we'll have like a video about whatever that topic is. If we're talking about like gender expression, we'll have like a fun, quick video. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we may have like a craft even, which I tend to lead because I'm like artsy and crafty. And that can look like whatever kids want it to if they just have like a pencil and paper or if they want to get fancy with markers. And then they'll kind of share on their screen or they can send it later if they'd like. And we also have like a Spotify playlist that we created together with all like mostly queer artists or like queer anthems. Uh, that are kid friendly, which can be tough to find. Um, That's amazing. I, thanks. But we have like 70 songs now. So I just kind of like put that on the car with my kid. And I'm just like, oh, I like this. This makes me happy. <laughs> but we do a dance yeah. party and like we make it interactive. So on Zoom, like the kids can pick which song they want with a poll and stuff. So yeah, it's very playful and fun. And usually there's time for them to like share their pets or just be weird and random since most kids, at least the younger ones are like, I have a cat. And just like, <laughs> yeah, Ooh, they go on tangents you- like I do. Oh, yeah. They're total tangent creatures. Plus, like, I would imagine that there is a large amount of neurodivergence in that group. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It makes me happy. And like, they all share their little like video game handles and like connect afterwards online, which makes me happy. That is community building. Yeah. I think people imagine us just like talking about lesbians all day. But it's like, we're not really even (laughs) talking about queer stuff. We're just like, hanging out and whatever. Talking about anime. That's so great because kids tell me all the time when I'm like, I'm going to do a group and it's like all trans kids. And they're like, I would love to do this group. Um, but I I am like over the idea of like, I'm going to get along with people just because they're trans, right? Mm-hmm. Like they really wanted to do more content specific groups so that they could connect with each other in meaningful ways and not just be like, well, you're trans, I'm trans. Like that right. sounds cool. Yes. Now we can know each other but i we have nothing in common other than that <laughs> um and so that's been a really important i think thing for kids right to be able to create spaces where they can express their interests mm-hmm. um that are just safe for them to be themselves yeah we have lots of layers and not just one-dimensional humans <laughs> yeah yeah weird that's weird that's so strange um, and so if somebody wanted to join since you have people from all over the country and Mexico. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do they go about joining? What do they do? 
Um, so you can go to the Abington Free Library site, which is abingtonfreelibrary.org, and you can check the events calendar. And it's usually like the second Monday of every month. And whatever month this airs, hopefully you can click there and register. Um, and if not, you can email me if you'd like. Yeah, I'll put the link to the library and your email address in the show notes. And then people can reach out and figure out how to get um, their kiddos connected. Because I have a bunch of little kids over here that are desperate for community. Oh, I would love that so much. And we try to like connect with the, you know, grownups as well and provide resources to them outside of that. So like after we do the meetup, we send like all the things that happened in the meetup if you couldn't attend and then like a bunch of extra resources for people. Oh, like a follow up. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's all Jessica. She's fantastic oh. with that stuff. I'm like, good job being organized. A+. Librarians. Darn know? it. Making us look bad. <laughs> Is there anything else that people should know about this before we switch and talk about Euphoria? Um, I would just say that like we're also, Jessica and I, my co-host, are presenting to other um, counties in the area to the children's librarians to try to encourage them to open their own programs. Uh, and they can kind of like use ours as a blueprint, a blueprint or a template. And we're very transparent with like all of the things that we've used to help us. So if anyone's interested in starting their own group, uh, you can email me and I can try to connect you to that. PowerPoint, or we can even present to someone in your area if that's helpful. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think super, super, super great. I think that the more local libraries can do it, the like the more yeah. powerful it is, like then they have community right there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just really, really important. I'll be connecting you with my local children's library. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, that's for sure going to happen. Okay. So then you're also involved in this other project. Um, it's called Youthphoria. Why don't you just start by trying to, to capture the beauty of this project? Um, so it's like an ongoing photo project where we are photographing trans, non-binary, gender expansive youth in the Philadelphia area at no cost. And we're hopefully providing a affirming experience for them along the way, which can look like them getting a new outfit and accessories or like binder or shapewear, whatever might feel good for them. And then if they'd like hair and makeup, that's also offered. Um, and then just like the involvement of like finding a photo location that feels accessible to them and safe-ish, you know, I can't promise safety, but like as much as I'd like to, I try to find spaces that feel safe for people. Um, yeah. And it's just been really exciting and we've been doing it since last year and it's funded by mutual aid. So that makes me fired up because just like seeing the community care for each other in this way is really lovely. So I, as you were telling me about this yesterday, I was like, well, this sounds amazing. And then you sent me like the link to it. And I like legit cried about it. Like these oh. are beautiful pictures. The kids just look so peaceful and joyful at the same time. Yeah. You know, they're just so like, this is me. And I'm so happy with it. I sent it to, I told you this already, but I sent it to like 20 people uh, around here. And I was like, how do we do this? How do we do this? <laughs> I mean, I would encourage any parent who wants to know, like who's looking at their trans child who is maybe in agony or experiencing a ton of dysphoria or they've just lost the light, mm -hmm. um, you know, the way that some kids do when they're unable to transition or before they transition or they're mid-transition. And to go to the Euphoria page, uh, which is euphoria.org. Again, that'll be in the show notes. And just click on that gallery link and look at those images of like the wholeheartedness of these kids. It's beautiful. 
Thank you. I really wanted to like just let people know it existed. I want parents to be able to see what it looks like when kids get their light back. Mm. Um, And if anyone is interested in doing this, wherever you are, let me know and we will figure out a way to make it happen because this needs to exist everywhere. Kids need to be able to see themselves. Yes. At first I wanted to start a community fridge, but then I was like, I have no experience with food things. And then I was like, (laughs) I know how to take pictures. And I was a crisis counselor with the Trevor Project for six years. So I was like, that way I can kind of merge both of those skills in a way that makes more sense than a fridge. But I would love to see it spread like I see community fridges spread in the way that mutual aid spreads. So that would be really cool to have it pop up throughout different locations. Yeah. I'm going to, the next one's going to be Euphoria PDX. Yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned that you're non-binary. You mentioned that you're the parent of non-binary kid. um, And you went looking for community. Can we just talk a little bit about how that, like the evolution of gender and what it looked like in your home? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. Oh, and you just like came up with that on the spot. I'm so impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Not trying to like deflect, but also that's so cool. Um, I want to like go inside your brain. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's messy. <laughs> uh, for my gender journey, if you will, I guess it's like always been there. Um, and I just like finally had enough time to sit with myself throughout the pandemic, which I know is a privilege and like not everyone was afforded that luxury. Um, but during that time, I had just come out of having had brain surgery and I was like finally allowing myself to define myself as disabled. And then that kind of just like quickly turned into me being like, hmm, I'm going to question all parts of my identities. And I was like, every day I was questioning if I was cis or not. And so that felt like something that a cis person wouldn't do. (laughs) No, they don't. don't And like, (laughs) yeah, once I saw enough TikTok videos kind of being like, you are absolutely not cis. I was like, okay, I can maybe claim this space. And I think it took being in community with someone that you also know, Erica Corday and India Jackson Mm -hmm. in Pause on the Play. I was in their group and I felt like I could ask them questions about taking up space and whether or not I was allowed to do so. And they kept encouraging me to claim labels for myself myself that like felt good. And um, from there, I was able to like share with my partner who was very much like, yes, I already knew that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, cool, cool, cool. Um, And then we've always talked about gender in this house. So my kiddo quickly was like, that's awesome. And then soon also came out as non-binary. And our three-year-old has also like expressed curiosity around gender and said things like, I'm a boy and today I'm non-binary and I want he or they pronouns. So it's just been like really fluid and open in this house for the most part, except for my partner who seems pretty solidly like a cis dude, (laughs) which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's just how it works for them. Yeah. You know, but yeah, you're right. Like cisgender people don't typically wonder like, am I? Yeah. I've got all these things that feel like they could fit there. Exactly. Right. And I was always just like so into queer culture and like so just into writing about queer issues and advocating for all the LGBTQIA plus issues and language use. And um, and then I was like, oh, I'm I'm not sure I can call myself pansexual, that whole like feeling like a fraud of it all. And that eventually I gained enough confidence to be like, OK, I am pansexual, even if like these other things haven't happened in my experiences. Like I started to talk to myself like I talked to the kids in the Trevor Project chat. Um, which I wasn't really doing before. I wasn't really being a good friend to myself, which is cheesy, but yeah. Most of us aren't very good friends to ourselves. 
we're way better at helping other people explore their issues than we are at doing it ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think that your experience coming out later in life and figuring it out later in life, especially during the pandemic, holy moly, the number of people who figured it out during the pandemic, they're just alone with their thoughts and social media. And they're like, mm-hmm. you know what? Uh, <laughs> a lot of people's stories sound like mine. Exactly. And, um There's been a huge shift, I think, during the pandemic of people who have figured it out, tried it out and come out and across all ages. Right. I think as it becomes more socially acceptable and the media representation is more positive and people are seeing more representation, they can then say, like, that's me, too. Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's what's happening there. And there's not an age that you can't do it right like it mm. this is one of the reasons why i encourage parents to write their own gender journey too is that a number of parents as they do their gender journey goes whoa i did not realize how hard i was trying to fit in these boxes yeah even just the awareness of how envious they are of their kids experience and then the, the grief that they have to do around not being able to explore that as a young mm-hmm. person it's pretty powerful if any parent has not yet done that work highly highly encourage you to write the story of your own gender journey. And so when you say you talk about gender at home, how would you do that? How did you talk about it to make it so like open and welcoming and available for exploration? I've always been like kind of obsessed with language. And as a wedding photographer, gender pops up so much with what you're doing. So like saying things like wedding party instead of bridal party or marriers instead of bride and groom. Um, There's just like a lot of cishet norms that are just like drilled into you in the industry. And (laughs) I kind of carried that thinking with me as a parent. And so just the way we talk about people, if we see them on the playground, like that kid over there in the yellow shirt, instead of like that boy over there and not making assumptions and not assuming pronouns about people. Um, And just like the language we use, like if there's a snowman, we say snow person, which sounds really embarrassing probably. (laughs) Most people are like, oh, you're so PC. But like these things kind of like matter. And I, I noticed myself gendering like bears and children's books as boys or he and that's just like drilled into my head also so just trying to like step out of these norms and re-examine it like Erica says in the pause in the play community and yeah I don't know that's a little Erica plug (laughs) that's great and Erica's going to be on the podcast too so everyone will get a chance to be introduced to her and pause on the play which is phenomenal um and it starts with like what we're talking about is like building awareness right this Mm -hmm. understand like when you start to look when you start to be aware of like the language and the how things are gendered in society especially if when you've got like a trans kid and you're like oh gosh I'm trying to get this right and then it sort of just becomes almost overwhelming with how much gendered language we use mm-hmm. and you don't even realize it and that's that's programming right like that's the programming all the way up until that point and then you start to go oh why am I calling bears boys? Yeah. Right? I just think it's so important for kids to be able to have a place where they can express those things and explore those things and try those things. And when we gender them at home, when we gender those things mm-hmm. at home, we take away their opportunity for exploration. Yeah. One of the things that I ask kids a lot about their childhoods is, was there anything you ever wanted to play with that you couldn't play with? Ooh. Um, like because it was 
a boy toy or a girl toy? Like, is there anything that you, gosh, mm. you wish you could have had it, but were denied it? Um, and there's almost always a yes. <laughs> um, or there's a, no, like my family was really cool. Like I was totally fine for me to play with this or that. Yeah. Um, or I had older siblings that were different genders. And so um, our house was full of all kinds of toys. But yeah, it's an important thing for parents to realize how, just how much programming they're participating in as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. We had a whole room of the house that was just white and like couches were covered and I wasn't allowed to go in it. And that was just like white supremacy as a room. It was just like perfectionism. <laughs> and I like want to go there and like get all Jackson Pollocky in there and like splatter mud everywhere. <laughs> That's my toy. I would go in the white room and fuck it up. <laughs> That's amazing. I want to shift one more time. Um, I do want to talk about neurodivergence. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so neurodivergence for listeners is sort of the umbrella term that we use to talk about those of us who have different wiring, um, in some way or another, that is autism spectrum stuff. That is ADHD stuff. Even OCD stuff falls in there. Mm. Sensory processing issues fall in there. But those are like the big ones that people think of when we talk about neurodivergence. And typically neurodivergence, when we talk about it, most people jump straight to autism or to ADHD or a combination thereof. Um, Mm. But I just wanted to name that it's a little bit more to it than that. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about neurodivergence is because you're very open about being neurodivergent, which I think is great. I'm also neurodivergent. I have pretty intense ADHD. Uh, and without the Adderall that um, runs my life, uh, I would be even more chaotic. And I'm the mom of a neurodivergent kid, but also the trans community, right? We're still learning so much about um, the trans community, but I am yet to meet a trans person. Um, and I know a lot of trans people. Um that is not neurodivergent in some way. Yeah. And so while we're still learning about what what that means or how that works, I think it's important for parents to know about neurodivergence. So starting question, when did you learn you were neurodivergent? Mm, like late last year, like around, I think like December of last year, 2021. Yeah. I was on Twitter and I was just, I'm kind of like super into the disability justice world. And I was following someone and they said something about like safe foods and their autistic kid. And I was like, oh shit, that sounds like my kid who only eats like the same three things. And that kind of spiraled me out into the internet where I learned more about what autism actually is versus what like the media told me autism was. Um, and I definitely you know, came to the conclusion that I I have to imagine our child is autistic. I can't for sure say that. He has not been diagnosed formally yet. But from there, I did a bunch of tests for myself and realized, oh, yeah, I'm very much autistic. And I just like started crying at my computer because I felt seen. And it was like this aha moment that everyone talks about. And it's just like really powerful because you feel like you're broken. And then someone on the internet who, you know, this little test maker tells you like, you're not broken. That's just how you're wired. And you're like, oh my God, thank you. I needed that. I feel like I can spot um, neurodivergence a mile away. As a clinician, I am not 
allowed. My license is not allowed to diagnose autism. Mm. I can diagnose ADHD. I can diagnose OCD, but I'm not allowed to diagnose autism. And that can only be done by a doctor, either a psychologist or um, a medical doctor. And around here, the wait to get an autism diagnosis at best is like nine months. Um, we'll add in the layer of transness, right? Yep. So talk for a minute about what it was like to try and find somebody who understood you being a non-binary person with feminine expression. Yeah, that's really tough. I really wanted to find someone who wouldn't like misgender me throughout the process because I already felt like I'd be masking throughout the assessment since that's what I've been doing my entire life. Um, so I wanted to find someone who would make me feel comfortable. And I ended up finding someone named Matt Lowry, who isn't based in my area, but we were able to do it virtually. And he is autistic. He has an autistic child. He was recommended in this queer exchange Philly Facebook group that I'm in where we just kind of like all ask for references and referrals and stuff. And he was just like fantastic. And I think there's something about having an autistic evaluator who is not going to push ABA on you and make you feel like you need to be fixed. And ABA is just like applied behavioral analysis for people who might not know that. Um, it has roots in, you know, the same, that person also was instrumental in the creation of gay conversion therapy. So typically autistic people, I'm not going to speak for everyone, you know, don't really love ABA therapy. Um, I know it works for some. They do not. <laughs> so I really wanted to find someone who wouldn't push that on me and I wouldn't have to like advocate for myself because I am very people pleasy as my assessment told me. <laughs> I am not good at like pushing against the grain most times. Um, it was just like a magical fit and everything. Like I prepared so much. I went on YouTube like what to expect for a uh, formal autism diagnosis and it was nothing that I thought it would be. We talked about Ghostbusters and like Mythbusters <laughs> and I did have to fill out questionnaire which was fun for me. Like I like sitting and like hyper focusing on 300 questions. That kind of stuff was really fun. But yeah, I thought he'd have to like interview my parents and I was like, oh no, we don't have the best relationship. That's not going to go well. But it was just right. delightful and he has this amazing community on Facebook where we can ask questions and be vulnerable. And I don't think I needed the formal diagnosis to have my, you know, autism be valid. I did it mostly for outside people in my life who I wanted to prove it to. So I don't know that I ever sh needed to do that. And I know it's such a privilege to be able to do that. It was like $2,000. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad I did do it. It did validate me internally, even though I shouldn't have to. It's a hard one for so many reasons, right? Like one, the wait times are super long. Two, mm -hmm. um, there's still so much we don't know about neurodivergence. And being the parent of a kiddo who has an autism diagnosis um, and an ADHD diagnosis, like, and having conversations with developmental pediatricians and occupational therapists and trying to figure out like how to help him live in the world that's not designed for him. Mm -hmm. Like as you have conversations, it becomes aware. It just becomes so clear. There's just so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing's for sure, like the autism that I think you and I were taught about when yeah. we were young is autism. But so is what you experience and so many other people experience. And I want to just also mention like there's a, there's a phrase that people use or a term that people have used, um, which is high functioning autism. And I want to just say that that is not a phrase that is welcome in the autism community or in the autistic community. So if and they 
that community really does like to be called autistic, mm-hmm. uh, which is another thing that is interesting because so often we hear as professionals use person first language. So person first language, person first language, right, right? Exactly. So a person with autism and the autistic community is like, no, it's part of my identity. I am autistic. Yeah. Um, call me autistic. And so using that language also has been something that I've learned about. Um, you just don't know, right, how difficult someone's experiences in this world that's designed for um, allistic or neurotypical people. Yep. And you hear people say stuff like, you don't look autistic. And it's like, you know, uh, or like you said, like the, the functioning labels versus saying like support needs. Um, that can be tough because it feels like people are minimizing the, the experiences you go through on a daily basis that they don't see because you've made it easy for them. Yeah. And it all ties back to like the transness of it all, like people telling me I don't look trans or I don't look non-binary. And it's like, what do you think that looks like? And why do you think it looks like that? And, you know, do I have, I feel like I'm being subversive, like if I have long hair or if I wear a dress one day and it's just, (laughs) it's frustrating for sure to be perceived as a certain way and know that that's not who you are. Yeah. And I relate completely did that sentiment. I also am a non-binary person. I use she and they pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always tell people like, you can use either one. They both feel wrong. Um, <laughs> but the only thing that feels wronger is he. Um, yes. So like, that's fine. Use whatever word comes out of your mouth. But there's just something that doesn't land with either one of those. And to live in that ambiguity space is a very challenging thing as well. People see me and they see like, you know, they mm-hmm. clock you. Yep. Like, oh, girl, if I'm wearing any makeup, when my hair looks at all feminine, which is often, and um, I tend to present myself pretty femininely as well. I think there's part of me that does that because it makes people feel more comfortable. And that's just my own journey. Yeah. I think even like when we call ourselves non-binary, like it feels like we're defining ourselves based on what we're not versus what we are. And we're just like still waiting for this language to show up to let us know what we are. Um, I don't know. I want to like do another podcast plug for Fanti, which is amazing. It's hosted by Travel Anderson um, and co-hosted by Travel. And there was an episode called No Sissies Allowed. And mm-hmm. Deshaun L. Harrison was on and they just like talked about gender and non being non-binary and like how sometimes it feels like it's a stepping stone for like people thinking you're a trans woman or a trans man and like we are our own thing too and that doesn't always have to be the case can we talk just for a minute about i want to just let parents know some of the things that they might want to be on the lookout for around neurodivergence with their kids um so let's start with like you said when you were it all started like looking at your kid yes right which is mm-hmm. very common. This is what happened in my family. Like my, we started checking out my son and um, his dad was like, oh, <laughs> uh, I do all of that. That's, that is also <laughs> me. What, what do you mean that's not what, how, like it was a very eye-opening experience for him. I remember mm-hmm. one time I was listening to, I was watching like a YouTube series. There's a great YouTube series. Um, on ADHD by a guy named uh, a guy, a doctor named Russell Barkley. Um, mm-hmm. And he's sort of like the lead researcher for ADHD. Um, 
He's based in Canada. And it's 30 essential things that parents need to know about ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, it is three hours long, which cracks me up. But because it's about ADHD and it's so long. Um, but it is broken down into like 15 minute segments, which I think yeah. is really helpful. Um, but I was watching that and um, <clears throat> he was listening right next to me. And he goes, what are you, What what is that? And I was like, oh, it's just this thing about ADHD that I'm trying to learn about um, more for uh, George and like other clients I have. And he was yeah. like, that guy's describing me right now. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what about that? Ooh, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Uh, genetics are cool. <laughs> genetics are great. <laughs> um, what were the signs and things that you saw in your kiddo that made you go, huh? The safe food thing was the first thing I saw. And I was like, wow, that's validating because like it feels like helpless um, because he's just eating the same like two foods every day and everybody has all these suggestions and nothing works. And I feel like I'm failing in some way and that's just who he is and that's fine. And he can just eat the two things. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't need to change that. (laughs) That's right. Um, You don't. I think transitions are tough for me and him. And um, yeah, if we're, you know, if we're having a consistent schedule to like go on vacation or something really throws us off for a loop or even the summer break can kind of like make things stressful and lead to more meltdowns. Um, And I think sensory issues like sensitivity to sound, I always notice like that they will cover their ears in a room when we go somewhere loud and I'm not seeing the other children doing that. And that's making me feel like what's going on there. And just like special interests, like so into Venom from Spider-Man and wants Venom everything. Like I had to make a Venom cake today. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I would say like eye contact is definitely difficult for my little one and for me as well. And that's something like as soon as I started my evaluation, the evaluator was like, you're very autistic. Like within two minutes, he was like, you have an autistic accent. You're not giving eye contact. And I was like, what are you talking about? I thought I was making eye contact this whole time. It's interesting. The autism accent that you bring up, right? Like I can't even mimic it, but I can hear it. Um, I can hear it when my kid does it. Um, and I remember being in our evaluation and our pediatrician talking about like, this is, do you notice that he talks like this mm-hmm. and like sort of going up at the end of sentences where there's not a need to go up mm-hmm. or the inflection of his speech pattern just was yep. just slightly off from what you would hear from someone who's not autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, that's a thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah that's a thing. Yeah. I remember for us, it started also with sensory issues, mm-hmm. right? And so you like the sensory issues, I think, are the clearest first indicator. If you've got a kid who doesn't meet the sort of stereotypical, this is what autism looks like. For me, it was, um, I noticed that when he crawled, that's when I first started to notice that he was sensory something. And mm. I didn't really think anything of it at that point other than like, wow, you're weird. Um, and like when he crawled, he would like slam his hands down on the ground when he crawled. That's cool. Um, or he would put books under his hands and crawl. Oh, that's so like, smart sliding. to avoid that. Oh, that's so smart. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant, right? Like he could find the ways to like make this work for himself. Um, and then like he was just really heavy footed and like to the point where like when we were in hotels, I had to start asking to be on the ground floor with him because the people above mm-hmm. us would always complain like this kid is jumping up and down. And I'm like, <laughs> actually, he's not. He's just walking. That's just how he walks. Um, 
And then the foods just like got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and the same thing. And our pediatrician said like, that is just not the hill you need to die on. Mm, um, right. There's only one, so many things that they can control. And food is one of the things that kids can control. And if he's getting his nutrients in and mm-hmm. you can give him a vitamin and let's focus on other things. And that's what it was. Right. And so then also trying to figure out, okay, how do we help him be in this world? Right. So it took us still even a year, I think, after he said, I think that he's autistic for mm-hmm. us to go us too. Um, and, uh, and I don't, I think that hesitation was just like the scariness of labeling a kid mm-hmm. um, with such a big label. And what I recognize now is that was my own internalized stigma around what that word means, what yeah. it means to be autistic and how scared I was of it, um, of letting him be that. And mm-hmm. ever since we've accepted it, oh, things are so much better, right? Yeah. Like when you said, you said like, I have to look at my kid as if they're autistic. Um, and it's because when you have an autistic kid and you know that they're autistic, you parent them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you recognize like, oh, this is a sensory thing that's happening right now. Oh, you needed more time in your transition right now. Oh, oh, you expected this this to go this way. It's not going that way. And yeah. that is really throwing you off. Oh, you need more information about why this is important. Um, right. And so having a better understanding of like how his brain is actually working, I can tailor how I approach him and like understand what his behavior means and like figure things out with him and help him understand like, this is why this is hard right now. Um, mm-hmm. And did you have a similar experience? Like once you started to like, I'm going to parent you though, as though you're autistic. Yes. I had been parenting differently before. Like we were kind of taking away privileges of different toys. If, if there wasn't mm-hmm. listening happening. And then I realized like that toy is a self-stimulatory toy for you. For you and if I take it away, it's going to like not do what I think it's going to do. It's going to make it worse. You're going to hit me and punch me. Um, So Mm -hmm. now we kind of like focus on things like natural consequences by having like a timer out. So like if you don't want to transition to this next thing, we won't have enough time for three books. We'll only have time for two books. And that kind of stuff has been putting more power back in in my kiddo's hands and like letting them take the lead in a way where I think it feels a lot safer for him, hopefully. Yeah. I've noticed the natural consequences are are a very powerful tool that I use a lot more now. Um, and explaining the natural consequence, like this is what will happen. Yeah. Right. If this goes this way. And I remember there was like recently a time when he was using a lot of foul language because um, he had something had clicked, I think, probably through YouTube where he was like swearing equals cool. Um, I want to be cool. I want to have friends people who swear seem cool. I'm going to do it. Seems reasonable. Um, all of my favorite YouTubers use this language. <laughs> and so it's just sort of like erupted with foul language. And I remember I was like, oh, I had this moment as a parent of, be- of like growing up in a super conservative home. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents still don't like it when I swear. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get judged real hard. Um, but I can only do so much about the way that his brain processes in order to get him to stop swearing, right? And I told him eventually, so as a kid, when you use words like that, other adults are going to think things about you mm-hmm. and they're going to label you as a bad kid and it's going to cause problems. So it's really important that you work on the language thing and you don't yes. do it. And he was like, and he says, 
I just don't think that's true. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And that was sort of where I left it. Um, and then one of his friend's parents did it. And that was what did it. It was the natural consequences, Ugh. right? He was like, I'm going to lose my friend if I continue to talk this way. Mm-hmm. And I, that is more important to me than talking this way. Mm. And that's really what it came down to. And then all of a sudden, like all the swear words stopped. It was great. Um, <laughs> but I didn't damage my relationship with him in that process of trying to like come at him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, did it hurt my soul a little bit sometimes? Sure. But it was about learning and it was about growing and about letting him also learn things the way that he needs to learn them, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah. really hard. Uh, and it can be like conflicting too. Like I see my kids wanting to bounce their legs at the dinner table. And for me, that bothers me. But I'm also like, I want you to be able to release that energy so I don't stop them. I know how that feels to have to mask and I don't want to do that to them. And I see other examples of that pop up where they're like chewing on their hands or a towel that's definitely not clean. And it's like a pandemic. So I'm trying to be mindful of germs. So I bought them like chewing necklaces. So just finding like alternatives and creative ways to let them get that energy out or whatever it is or stim has been helpful for us. Yeah. Once you recognize that having a good sensory diet, a sensory diet is like understanding what their sensory needs are and giving that to them intentionally throughout the day mm-hmm. um, really helps keep the reg- – like helps them regulate. Um, it's so different to approach it that way and to meet his needs and when you can recognize his needs mm-hmm. um, or their needs. Then yeah. it, it just turns into like something totally different and – they start to feel seen and understood and not made to feel weird about it. And they can understand themselves better. Yeah. But all because we can meet the needs. Mm-hmm. Loop earplugs are my favorite new thing. And oh. like, cause my kids will listen to the same song as a stim over and over and over and over. And I'm just like, ah, <laughs> uh-huh. trying to do dishes. And so I just put those in and it really helps. So just finding ways where we can coexist. Yeah, loop earplugs are great. Um, have you? There's also ones that are called Calmer. Ooh, I don't have. Um, they're like just like a little silicone sleeve that you can put in your ear canal, and they just sit right inside, um, and they stay in place. And it's something about like the way that it protects the first part of your ear, like your ear canal, from like mm-hmm. receiving over stim, like over the top. Um, so cool. Holy moly. It's amazing. I will post a link to those uh, resources <laughs> as well. The, the loop earplugs and the calmer earplugs. Okay. So really quickly, I want to make sure that people know, right, that autism shows up in there's a lot of criteria to meet an autistic diagnosis to get a formal diagnosis. The University of Washington put out a uh, statement not too long ago, which I will post also in the show notes. Um, that says that self-diagnosis is valid um, in large part because of access to diagnostics, but also because they understand that the autistic community understands themselves better than the neurotypical community does. Exactly, yeah. And so they're saying like, look, if you are doing this research and this you relate to this and this sounds and feels like you, it's probably you and Mm -hmm. you should be able to like just say that this is who you are and the autistic community is also really great about saying self-diagnosis is valid and when we think about formal diagnosis versus non-formal diagnosis you had said you did it in part because like the people around you you knew would need to have Mm -hmm. like a formality around it in order to believe you 
Right, which feels a lot like letting outsiders define who I am, which I did with my queerness for so many years. So I don't recommend it, <laughs> but that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> don't do what I did. <laughs> and also it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always tell families like, if your child needs accommodations in school or if you mm. need accommodations at work that you are unable to get just by asking for them, and oftentimes you can get them just by asking for them, right. um, then there's really not a need to go through this process. But if your child needs more than that or if you need more than that and you're having a hard time getting through like your activities of daily function or da a daily living, then it really is valuable to have that diagnostic so you can say especially in like college and things like that and you can go to disability services and um get the support that you need in order to be successful Absolutely. Um, which is ultimately what ended up happening in our case which is why we were like yeah we need to get the support that we need right we need yeah. occupational therapy and so the criteria for autism you can find online um but basically it's a matter of social deficits or difficulties mm -hmm. uh, with connecting with people socially in a way that makes sense. Um, it's about communication in large part. A lot of kids that I work with say they have a really hard time getting things from their brain to their mouths. Um, and the eye contact is part of communication, social cues, figuring out like nonverbal communication, all of it mm -hmm. is really, really valuable and important. And a lot of that is missed um, uh, when you're autistic. And um, the sensory processing stuff has to be there. Um, and that can come in many different forms. Um, and then, uh, we also have the special interest piece and the hyperfocus and, um, special interest, just so people know is not like, oh, I'm super into this, but like, I'm so into this that it's basically the only thing that I want to talk about, read about, or research. And every time I get more information on it, it feels like euphoria and I will direct every conversation back to the subject <laughs> And then uh, I might be into it for anywhere from six months to two years. Then one day my, it might just like end. Yep. <laughs> um, and then I'm no longer into that thing. And I'm now into this other thing. And here I go. Mm -hmm. um, it's great when your kid has a, a special interest that you are also interested in. It is hard when their special interest is not something you're interested in. But uh, – again, for that validation, for connection, right? Sitting with them and talking with them just for like 10, 15 minutes, even about what their special interest is, mm -hmm. um, really takes things a long way. Yeah. I appreciate that about my partner. Like he will listen to gender podcasts because he knows that's a special interest of mine. So I'm just like, mm, thank you. Cause I really want to talk all about the genders. <laughs> the all about the genders. That's great. <laughs> I mean, that was all autism. Then we didn't really even talk too much about ADHD, but ADHD comes in many different forms too. One of the things about ADHD is that all attention-based issues kind of get funneled into the world of ADHD, even though that is probably very inaccurate. And with ADHD stuff, you can be hyper. You don't have to be hyper. Um, you can daydream. You don't have to daydream. You can just be thinking about 20 different things and go on 20 different tangents. Um, <laughs> and just have a really hard time maintaining tasks and follow through and processes. Oh God, processes are the worst for me. <sighs> um, it's more complicated than that. But um, if you're interested in learning more about ADHD, I will post the YouTube video link that I talked about as well as some other resources to learn more about it um, and how you can get diagnosed or explore diagnosis for your kids. 
and yeah, neurodivergence. Yeah. Can I share a plug to a Medium article that really helped me? Heck yes. Okay. You can just put it in the notes if you want to be fancy, but it's definitely will. (laughs) It's by Dr. Devin Price, who's a trans dude, who's an amazing writer, who has this book called Unmasking Autism. But um, he also has an essay called From Self-Diagnosis to Self-Realization about Autism that really helped me realize that like it was valid to not have to get a formal assessment. And I say that with the privilege knowing that like I am my own boss and I create my own accommodations. So obviously my kids, I look at differently. I want them to have resources at school and stuff. So but yeah, it's a good read. Awesome. I really appreciate that. And I'm probably going to try and call him. All right. Well, uh, Shannon, thanks so much. Thank you for letting me talk about gender and transness. And <laughs> This has been amazing it's such a fun conversation and i can't wait to share all the work that you're doing the show notes are just gonna be epic on this one and um we'll be posting links to things also through our social media stuff so that if you're interested in getting connected to uh, rainbow connections or euphoria or anything um that's a great place to do it and i think that's it yeah thank you thank you I'm so grateful for Shannon for all of the work they've done to support trans kids. I hope you'll be inspired to start similar projects in your own communities. I know Shannon would be happy to chat with anyone wanting to give it a shot. Thanks so much to Shannon for being on the show and for sharing about Rainbow Connections and Euphoria. And thank you to all of you for listening. I continue to be humbled by our little community and so proud of the work we're doing together. Thanks for showing up and keeping us going. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows that there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart.